Mark 13, 14 to 31. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate it. Wow, what a text, huh? Anyone envy my, me my week of studying to stand up here and talk about it? Um, this is actually the second part of, of three sections of Jesus' words uh, to his disciples, to his friends. Uh, next week, Melody is going to bring the last part of that. But this is the central part. There's a lot of common themes with what came last week and what's going to come next week. Um, but what it reminded me of was, was something about our culture. And it's the, in our culture, books and movies and TV shows that portray some end of the world event or other global ruins seem to be becoming more and more popular. Have you noticed that? Um, from disaster movies like Don't Look Up, who's seen that? I know Adam has, we talked about it. To uh, zombie shows, The Walking Dead. <laughs> to uh, portrayals of like authoritarian political systems that kind of overrule, uh, like The Handmaid's Tale. Well, these can all be described by a word you might have heard, and it's the word dystopia. Dystopia. And it's sort of the opposite of another word, which is utopia. So are you following me? This is a, an English lesson. Um, so utopia, I, I kind of looked it up. What is utopia? And, and it arose actually uh, in an idea. It became to become an idea that scientific advances in technology would eventually create a world uh, that would be perfect and free from poverty and war. It was going to be in a wonderful, wonderful society, uh, a really a place where peace would reign, a perfect society. Everyone and everything would exist in harmony is the idea of utopia. But the, actually the words utopia come from two Greek words which don't really suggest that. Uh, the original person who created this believed that such a thing was an impossibility. And the word you in Greek is no and the utopia is place. So it's no place. 
is really the root of the word utopia, no place. Um, such thing is really an impossibility. Uh, and so that was one word that someone had. It actually came from a book back in the 16th century where this guy invented an island where everything was a utopia, but really it was a statement that this is impossible to happen. Um, so then dystopia was first used in 1868. I love history and words, so bear with me. And it was actually a guy protesting the English treatment of the Irish at the time. Uh, and he, he invented this word, uh, dystopia. And literally that means, if you get these, these, the prefix and the word means bad place, dystopia. And, and this passage in Mark seems to really echo that idea. Uh, images of disaster and ruin and destruction and chaos. And so Mark gives these words of Jesus which are, which are broad-rangingly chaotic, but he puts this little aside in there and says, let the reader understand. And most Bibles will have it kind of set apart with a couple little dashes to say this is something that Mark, the writer of the gospel, has added into Jesus' words saying, let the reader understand. Understand what, we might ask, because the first time I read this, I was perplexed as to what it might mean. Um, so once again, this is a tendency in our Christian world, we can be tempted to play a kind of a game of apocalyptic go fish, okay? Where, you know the game go fish, where you turn a card over and you've got like a trout, and then you turn another one as a sturgeon, that's the Scottish version, trouts and sturgeons, and you're meant to turn a card, you go, oh, sturgeon, sturgeon, okay, I get those cards, right? So what we can do is we turn over a card and it says, you know, earthquake, and you go, wow, that was that earthquake, or that's that earthquake, you know, and you start matching stuff up. And a lot of people spend all their time, I think, trying to figure out what all these things mean, uh, matching up scripture with world events. And every generation has had a tendency to do this. In fact, one of you last week, after I spoke last week, shared with me a video of a local pastor doing just that, just that very thing. He was telling you, this is what all this exactly means, and you should listen to me. And actually, I could handle only about five minutes before I had to turn it off and get a nice cup of tea and a cold washcloth for my head. It was a bit disturbing. So the question then, what does Mark want us to understand? What does he want us to understand? Well, there is actually some historical stuff that I think Jesus was pointing to and that Mark's readers early in that time would understand that this was about and it was connected to what happens in Jerusalem in 70 AD, a short few decades after Jesus is on the earth and sharing these stories. Uh, the Romans finally had enough of, of the Jewish rebellions that were happening. And in 70 AD, um, Titus came in and he utterly destroyed Jerusalem. And there's a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus, and he describes this, and it, it sounds very much like this in terms of complete destruction. Um, so Jesus' words here, a lot of people have said, serve perhaps as a warning to people. When you see this stuff happening, get out of there, leave. And it actually seems that many of them did. A lot of early Christians, they moved out of Jerusalem into the mountains to a place called Pella. Some of you may have visited there. Everyone been to the Middle East and visited where the... Nope. We, we, we like Southern California. We don't go anywhere, right? Why would you leave? It's beautiful. Um... But they did. But then this text talks about stars falling from the sky. And as far as I know, that didn't happen around about that time. So it's quite confusing. All of these, it's just a mix of these kind of apocalyptic, dystopian descriptions. And so I think what we might want to do, similarly to last week, rather than 
pin it on historical things and make that the focus. Try and think about what this reveals about the heart of God. Jesus' heart. I'd say heart rather than history is what we want to figure out from these words of Jesus. Because this is the longest continuous section of Jesus sharing his words with the people. And I think one thing to start with is, is, is how... Um, appropriate and fitting this is to what it means to be a human being. I think all these stories echo somewhat our collective sense of anxiety about the fragility of our systems and our, 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 our nations and the world itself. I think it gets really, reading this passage gave me like literally, you know, goosebumps. Um, and one thing is, I think if we simply thought this could remain in the pages of scripture or the films or TV shows we watch would remain on the screen or in the book, but the thing is we understand that they're very likely representative of things we most fear in the world. And we have been quite sheltered in this country from a lot of these things, but all around the world, people, this is not simply a story. This is their daily existence. So Jesus says, uh, Mark says, let the reader understand. So we want to understand Something about the heart of God that is revealed in this passage. Our sermon series in Mark is called, This is Jesus. This is what we want to understand. We're going to use three words to try and understand a bit about what Jesus says here. And they, the first two are quite scary. And the third one, hopefully, is very encouraging. And they are abomination, desolation, and consolation. First thing, abomination. It's in the text, Mark 13, 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. What does this mean? Well, abomination that causes desolation is an is a image from the Old Testament uh, in, the, in the, old, the book of Daniel. And really, it's referring generally to something that is impure, that should not be where it is. It even mentions about it does not belong. And it can refer partly to... Um, a leader before the New Testament who came in and actually sacrificed a pig in the temple and set up all these idols in the temple. And this was a horrific thing for the Jewish people. Um, it also could be referring to Rome and the fact that one of their leaders had wanted to put a Roman standard in the temple and there was such an uprising that, it was, that they changed their mind about that one. But it's very much about this sense of something that is impure, that is evil, that is, should not be there. Uh, once again, many people have tried to figure out interpretations of what this was. Um, but the main point, I think, if we take this more generally, is there are powers in this world that are present, that we can, we can see, we can observe, that are in opposition to all that God is about and all that God does. And I think that you can trace that right back to this entity, this created being that, that the scripture tells us is the enemy, a liar, a murderer from the beginning, and his name in scripture is Satan, the devil. And you can trace this abomination all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, this constant opposition to what God was calling people towards from the very beginning of the temptation in the garden and the fall into sin, in the idol worship that the people of Israel continually fell into time and time again, and they would erect idols and they would worship them rather than worshiping the living God whom they could not see. They would worship these, these statues of, of stone and of wood that they could see. 
And we've seen it in recent years with Jesus and these religious leaders in the temple continually opposing him, trying to trap him, trick him, out him, have him fall out of favor with the people. This stuff is happening in the temple and it is in opposition to what God is doing. And here's the thing, it is in the heart of human beings. I think we all have the capability to be entertaining or to be um, captivated or drawn away into this. Evil is real. Evil is real. This abomination, Mark says, is standing where it does not belong. And he's talking, I think, specifically about a reference to the temple, because this whole thing has been talking about the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's saying, pitching this idea of the place where God dwells, there is something that that enters in. I think he's telling us that the evil is like a parasite in God's creation, something that we can see, but he also is gonna tell us that one day it will be evicted, like the skunk that was in my crawl space. <laughs> Hang on. I'm a little parched. No, literally, I thought about that this morning. I was getting ready and I heard all these crows like crawing out and I, all my life I've been into nature, birds, animals. When you hear a bunch of crows like screaming, something's happening, like a predator, like a hawk or something. So, you know, being the keen ornithologist that I am, I went out and, uh, and I went up to the back door to look out and then I looked down and Mr. Skunk was trying to get in the crawl space around the traps that had been set. I filmed him, sent it to the trapper whose camera actually was switched off because our cats bugged him so much during the day with the camera going off that he'd switched it off. He's like, oh, thank you, good, we know. But, you know, I was thinking about that. It's like, it's like this, our house, our home, a place. This was a really good example of, you know, there's, a, there's something that should not be there that does not belong, and it is, is an invader. So this sense of this abomination, and it's where it does not belong. And it just says, in all of creation, there is this presence this evil uh, that, that, that is, not, is not ultimate, and one day it will be evicted. What does it cause? That's next thing Mark says is the desolation that causes, sorry, the abomination that causes desolation. This is the consequences of what this does. Wherever this is present, it is going to lead to something that he calls desolation, which is a ruin. Uh, it calls to mind all kinds of evil deeds and evil times. It's something that causes you to run. He says, the abomination that causes desolation. What should you do? Flee. As if your house is on fire. Don't take anything with you. Leave. Get out of there. And he specifically mentions a couple of things. And I think they're really well uh, chosen to demonstrate just something about our world. In the, the evil systems and things that happen in our world, there are certain consequences of desolation that are particularly um, regular. And the first one is that um, he says, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. I just think the fact that he mentions that is so true. Whenever there is war, whenever there is evil, it seems that the ones who suffer the most are these groups of people. It is women, it is children. Um, it made me think about the book of James when, when, when uh, James, who was, you know, shortly after this, was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, so he's probably experienced all of this terrible stuff, and he says in his letter about what to do to be a follower of Jesus, he says, religion that, that God accepts is this, 
to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And it's always these people who have the greatest suffering as a consequence of the evil that dwells in our world. Then he says, pray this will not take place in winter, specifically winter. You know, it can get pretty cold in the Middle East in winter. And as I was thinking about this, just thinking about the history of this world and the things that echo through this passage that, that we have heard about, and people in the, on this earth have really experienced that were so painful as a result of the brokenness of the world. I thought about Stalingrad of all places in World War II and the horrific suffering of people on both sides of that conflict from Germany and from Russia and just the dreadful circumstances and then the people who lived there, the citizens suffering through a winter with no food and these dreadfully cold temperatures. And then I thought about Ukraine. I thought right now, man, it's not Southern California, it is cold. It is wet, and I just felt my heart get heavy, and, and rightly so, right? The injustice should move us, it should hurt us. This desolation that is caused by this abomination, our world in many ways is unraveling, and we can feel so defeated, so tired, so weary, so broken. I love that Jesus doesn't mess around he doesn't do what sometimes evangelical churches do and say like, hey, just put your rose-colored glasses on, come to church, sing a few songs, and everything is wonderful. He says, this is the reality of this world. But he does not leave it there. The third word that we're gonna think about this morning is an old-fashioned word that maybe you don't use much, is consolation. Maybe you just think of it as like, you know, when you did okay in a competition, you get a consolation prize, right? But, but really, this word is something far greater than that. It's about being consoled. It's about comfort. It's about hope. And this is what Jesus brings. He doesn't leave us with the reality of a broken world. He says, look beyond this. Take action in the moment, for sure. If when you see the Roman armies coming, leave, run, flee, but do not despair. So we said last week, we can do terrible things to the earth, but there's only one who can call it a day at the end. And so he talks to this, this word is, is in common with this, uh, this sense of hope, and he uses the, the phrase, the elect. The elect. It's not the winner of an election. Um, and there's a lot of talk about the word of elect, and within the Christian traditions, there's a lot of different perspectives from very, very extreme one way of, you are chosen by God, there's nothing you can do about it. If you're not chosen, you're not going to ever be saved, to another side where it's fully our decision. And to me, it's a mystery, right? The, how does that all work, that God is sovereign, that God knows everything, yet we have somehow a free will and a choice for which we're responsible. I don't know how all that works. But here's what this seems to point to as the elect. It is those who are God's seekers. Just a few passages prior, he said, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And then this man says, that is so true. And Jesus said, wow, you are you, the kingdom of heaven. You're close to that. You're in this. So this is Jewish leader from the temple that comes to this place. So it's definitely talking about all those who are seeking God with all their heart. And so he has these three really hopeful things. You know, I would say, uh, you say, am I elect? I'd say, seek God, follow God. And I will answer the affirmative. You want to be elect? 
step forward to say, Jesus, take my life. It's yours, it already was, always will be. I'm yours. Um, and then you'll get up the next morning and be a broken human being, but you have grace <laughs> and forgiveness and a new life, right? But he uses this word three times, and it's so hopeful what he says to those who would count themselves among those who hearing these terrible things would go, I, I, I follow you, I want to follow you. He says the first thing, for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen. The second thing is, he says, that there will be signs and wonders and false prophets, and they may even deceive people, even the elect, be on your guard because I have told you everything ahead of time. And the third thing he says, that he will send his angels, he will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. The three words that he's talking about here, I think he explains, is that they are chosen, that they are forewarned, and that they are secured. So in the midst of a world coming undone and unraveling and the chaos, you are chosen, you are forewarned, you have revelation to understand what you need to understand about the heart of God and your place in this universe, this creation, and you are secured. You will not fly off into oblivion. You will be held secure. Consolation. The third thing is all about seeing. All through this whole passage and in Melody's thing next week, it's always a lot about paying attention and watching. He says, when you see, and then people will say, look, there is the Messiah. Look, there he is. People will see the Son of Man. And then he says, when you see these things happening. And you know, whenever I read scripture, I'm always looking for words that repeat, things that are just like, wow, that says that there, that says that there. How are they connecting? Uh, and I don't know if this is original to my little time with the scripture, but I thought it was pretty interesting uh, that there's two kinds of seeing and then the response to it. One is very scary and one is incredibly hopeful. The first thing is when he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, flee. This is a sight that causes fear and flight. Like rightly so, when you see these terrible evil things coming, you experience this fear and you run. But then he says, there's coming a day when all will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect. This is a sight that causes joy and gathering. See how they're so different? A sight that causes fear and flight versus when Christ comes, a sight that causes joy and a gathering, a bringing together of people. Consolation. We may, for a season, be in a place of flight and of fear and anxiety, but there's coming a day when we are in a place of joy and a gathering, a collection. This whole thing is about community. That's what we're trying to build here, right? That we are one, we come together, and he will gather them. And the third thing is about this sense of longevity. He says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And there's a ton of people written about what exactly that means, okay? You can read 10 commentaries and they all believe, well, it means that they believed he was coming back within their one generation, so you can research that for yourself. But here's what I think we can pay attention to in this passage, because it goes on to say, until all these things have happened, and it says, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. 
And I thought it was really interesting, the parallel between the generation, when he's talking about the elect, those who are chosen, those who are, are um, secured and forewarned, will not pass away, and his words will not pass away. And in the middle is the sense that what we see in this material world is passing away, but yet the people, the generation, the ones who seek God will endure. It's about endurance, persistence, perseverance. That those who pay attention to Jesus and the words that he says will endure. They are, they are connected in with everything that he has said and they are affirmed uh, and gathered by his word that will not pass away. So, dystopia, a bad place. Does it describe the world right now in some ways? Dystopia. Um, what do you think about this, the statement that science and technology will make a utopia of this earth? Is that what we have seen? I think actually it's given evil a far broader palette of ways to express itself in many ways. There's been wonderful technological advances, but also at the same time, right alongside, there has been great evil done. So, so we could try and escape. We can say, okay, I see some evil and stuff, and, and we do have a tendency sometimes to escape. I have noticed sometimes that people will try and move to more Christian neighborhoods or move to places in the country which are a lot more in alignment with their political views that feel more comfortable to them. Um, uh, but the, here's the problem with that. Um, if you do that, you take yourself there too. And guess what? You are a cause of problems and trouble. Don't move to that neighborhood. They're doing perfectly well without you. Right? And does, th does that come under the guise of like when you see the abomination of desolation, flee? Is that really something we could justify from this? I really do believe that God plants us in a place and it's going to be hard. And moving to some place you think is going to be more comfortable, I don't think it's going to be really necessarily more comfortable. And it may definitely not be what God wants us to do. Because wherever you are, there you are, painfully human, but wonderfully loved, with, with potential and opportunity, right where you are. I pray very carefully before making a move like that. Say, God, where do you want me to be? And often, that is the harder place where he wants you to be, because that's where you'll grow and make an impact. <clears throat> Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who is a philosopher guy, he wrote a book um, called The Gulag Archipelago. He was a, a soldier in the Russian army, um, and very, he was a Christian when he was growing up, but then he rejected it and, and very much followed communism. But he said something bad about Stalin one day and was thrown into a prison camp for a long time. And he wrote this incredible book, which just says so much about this concept of, of good and evil and, and how we see ourselves in that. I'm just going to read this little quote here. Um, it says, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So what do we do? We are part of this thing. The whole point of the story as it's coming to its resolution is that Jesus is going to make a solution for this. 
he's going to bring us to a place where we can truly have peace with God and one another, even in a world so still full of pain and ruin. So I was doing a little word looking again. Bear with me if you're not into words. I'm a word nerd. Uh, and, I, and I was trying to think of a word that would like describe not utopia, which is no place, but something that is a place, like there's a place where this is true, that, I, that it does work, it is a place of peace and joy and freedom from conflict and war and evil is like the skunk finally evicted. And I couldn't find one, I couldn't make one up that worked. Uh, you would have believed it if I had, but as you know, I couldn't like twist it, but then I found one that is actually true and it sounds just like the word utopia and it's utopia but it's spelt differently. Uh, if, and utopia is a place of ideal well-being that is a, an aspiration but impossible. Uh, this other word, uh, utopia, is actually means well. The word you means well or good, standing or place. It's like the word euphoria. What does euphoria mean? It, it's actually uh, somewhat means like a good feeling, right? It's something ecstatic. It's, it's the word, so the prefix you is good. Um, this, is, this is the point. This is what, what we can expect. This is the news, the consolation of the story is that there is coming this utopia, this good place, not the TV show. <laughs> Don't look to that for your cues about what that's gonna be like, but a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, to continue my word geekiness, there's another word with these same letters in the front. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who's read Lord of the Rings? So Tolkien had this word he made up, and it is eucatastrophe. Okay, he took the word catastrophe, which means a sudden change, and he put the word good in front of it. And he said something catastrophic that is good. Uh, and the, the, the definition of this is this. In essence, a eucatastrophe is a massive turn in fortune from a seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory, usually brought by grace rather than heroic effort. And you know what the most incredible example of that is? It is in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you want to think about dystopia, you look at that man that perfect, sinless Son of God hanging on a bloody cross for our sins, for the sins of the people who nailed him there. And then against all odds, against all expectation, all hopefulness, after the silence of Saturday, the stone was moved and the Son of God rose from the grave, guaranteeing the resurrection for every single other person that would put their trust in him. This was dystopia, a bad place, Golgotha, place of the skull, a place for evil deeds, but a place where God overcame, making this possible to step into this utopia, this place where peaceful reign. So what do we do in the meantime in a world that is not a utopia? We wait for the utopia, but we are in many ways dystopia. Next week, you're going to find out, because Melody is going to talk about that. But we have a purpose. And I think one way of describing that purpose is simply saying, Oh, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let me be a conduit for that. That I'll trust you enough to say, you can change my heart. You can move this line. You can reclaim more territory in my broken heart for you. 
and I'll be patient. I'll trust that you are working in my life and the lives of those around me and us collectively in that garden, in that pantry, in here, out in the community. He is working and we live every day in the light of that day where it's coming perfect and he will come. He will come. We look to that day and we live today in the full knowledge and confidence that Christ will return. He will gather. We're going to respond by coming to communion. And I don't have any communion stuff. So if someone could fling me one up, that would be great. Thanks, Chris. And uh, if, you, if you want to participate this morning, this is a way of saying, I want to follow Jesus. Even though the path in front of your feet, you don't know what it's going to look like. I can tell you, it's going to be some rocky days. And, but he'll use all of it to shape and, and mold us and change us. This is a way of responding today. And I'm going to do another word geek word, okay? It's Eucharist. Who's heard of the word Eucharist? I had a little rabbit trail of fun with this this week. And that prefix E-U is exactly where this word is formed from. And really what it means is good and grace. Because charis is grace in the New Testament. So what we are doing is we're saying in recollection, remembrance of what Christ has done, we are looking forward to and celebrating this good grace that we have been given. Isn't that cool? I promise there'll be less grammar next time, but it was just good. But, but it's incredible. And really the word actually, Eucharist, means thanksgiving. It's a response to the good grace that has been lavished on us, poured out upon us, exactly as we are. We are welcomed. You don't need to clean yourself up first to come come as you are, and then give your heart to Christ. Because he invited his disciples that night to celebrate the Passover, and they were a ragtag bunch of people, a betrayer, a soon-to-be denier, squabbling people, arguing about who's the greatest. But he loved them, and he said, come, eat with me. Take this bread. This is my body. Let's take the bread. This is my body that is given for you, that is broken for you that we might pass from death to life through the door that he opens. Let's take the bread. And he took the cup. Wine was a symbol of joy, but also was a symbol of the death that he would soon endure but he did it for his love for us. He willingly endured that death for us that we might be given his life, the blood of Christ. Now let's respond uh, uh, with music, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Father, thank you that you have called us, chosen us, and in response, we choose you. There are times when we don't know really what to do, where to go. The, the brokenness overwhelms us. Lord, help us at that moment to just simply rest in the promises that you have given us. To call out to you with honest hearts. To encourage one another. 
to be truly a, a community that sees one another, loves one another, supports one another, uh, and loves those around us. Thank you for making that possible by giving your life. In Jesus' name we pray.